save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. May you place my statue in your temple, sharing in your food. May you make my years prosperous, when I am in your following, kissing the ground in your temple every day. I have performed Ma'at for the Lord of Ma'at, because I know that he rejoices over it at all times. May you place my statue upon the ground in your noble temple forever and ever. From the autobiography of Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, circa 1370 BCE. In a bright, sunny courtyard, pilgrims came to make offerings before images of the gods. They laid wreaths of flowers, bowls of food, and jugs of beer before tall stone statues. Images of the divine, the statues were sprinkled with oils, and the coiling smoke of incense danced around their heads. Some of the statues were the gods that you'd expect, baboons of Thoth, rams of Amun, falcons of Horus. Others were more unusual. One in particular might have caught your eye. To the side of the courtyard, before the pylons of Karnak Temple, a statue stood out for the number of offerings which rested at its base. Sitting on a plinth, the statue depicted a man. He was seated, cross-legged, arms holding a scroll. His belly protruded, small folds of fat hinting at a comfortable life. His hair or wig was long, falling down over his back. His face was impassive, pensive. He was deep in contemplation. The statue is bedecked with flowers, a garland atop its head. Around its statues, someone has draped a fold of linen, expensive material, not given lightly. In the statue's lap, a bowl of dates and a jar of oils speak of other offerings made by the pilgrims who came to see this great statue. Watching over those offerings, the thoughtful face is an image of quiet dignity. Who is this man, this being who receives such worship? He is not a king, he wears no crowns and holds no scepters. His face is smooth-shaven, no beard to mark him as royalty. Were it not for the abundant offerings, you might walk past the statue and barely notice it. But this image is an important marker, a record of a man who lived 3,400 years ago. He is a man who became a god. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 101b, Successful Statues. Today, I am privileged to speak with Dr. Campbell Price, curator of the Egypt and Sudan collection at Manchester Museum. Dr. Price generously agreed to chat via Skype and discuss the legacy of Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, the man who became a god. 
In this discussion, Dr. Price and I explore the phenomenon of non-royal statuary and how individuals, without a claim to royal power, somehow manage to endure, sometimes for centuries. This episode is brought to you by the patrons who support the show on Patreon. This week, I want to thank Julian and Chris, who were the third and fourth patrons to sign up. Julian, Chris, thank you kindly. Your generosity keeps the offerings flowing to Karnak and sustains the immortal souls of men like Amunhotep, the son of Hapu. Thank you. Two thousand years ago, Egyptians sweated under the rule of the Caesars. Masters of Rome like Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius Caligula, and Claudius ruled the known world. They were powerful, universally respected, and profoundly influential on their societies. But far from their centres of power, events on the edge of the empire were much more serene. In the land of Egypt, people lived a life that had been three thousand years in the making. In these early days of the Roman peace, a scribe in Egypt put pen to paper and copied down a number of dusty, faded texts. He preserved writings on a variety of subjects, from mythology to ritual, and even the art of embalming. As he copied down these texts, he may have come across a curious passage indeed. Quote, to the deceased, your soul comes near to Amunhotep, the royal scribe and scribe of recruits. Additionally, your soul unites with Imhotep while you are in the valley. End quote. Amunhotep the scribe, more famously known as Amunhotep the son of Hapu, was venerated as a god of healing for nearly 1500 years. Within a few generations of his death, around 1370 BCE, Amunhotep, son of Hapu, had become the subject of worship and offerings among the commoners of ancient Egypt. They prayed to him for cures, and gave gifts to his statues in a number of places throughout the city of Thebes. For the lowly, the non-royal, Amunhotep Hapu was a popular being, with all the traits of a great god. The statues of Amunhotep Hapu sat comfortably in courtyards at many temples, there were at least nine of these within the sacred spaces of Thebes. The statues are generally quite similar in design, a seated man with a pot belly holding a scroll of papyrus. They rest on square plinths and bands of hieroglyphs located in different places like the scroll, the robes, and the plinth itself, record the titles and deeds of Amunhotep, son of Hapu. Among other things, they tell us how the statues themselves came about. Quote, the statue was given as a favour from the king to the temple of Amun at Ipet Sut, or Karnak, for the prince who is attached to the white chapel. The royal scribe, the true of voice, Amunhotep, the son of Hapu of Kemwer. The statues were given by a pharaoh in recognition of good service. That's relatively common, and if that were the statue's only claim to fame, we probably wouldn't give it a second glance. But... The text goes on, and as it does, we start to get a sense of something quite different happening here. Quote, O people of Karnak, those who desire to see Amun, come to me, I will report your petitions, because I am the reporter for this god. 
Present libations to me with that which is in your hand, because I am the reporter whom the king has placed for hearing the words of the humble, in order to present the affairs of the two banks to the god Amun. End quote. A reporter for the god, one who gives the humble access to the divine. The statues make a truly remarkable claim, a claim to commune directly with the gods, to intercede with them on behalf of those who come before them with humility. In effect, the statues of Amunhotep, son of Hapu, present the man as one who will act on behalf of the lowly and take their words to great Amun himself. The pilgrims who came before Amunhotep Hapu had specific requests. Apparently, worshipping him was good for curing eye trouble and other physical ailments, and on the spiritual level, Amunhotep was a guide to those seeking interactions with the gods. In fact, legend says that the scribe had even contributed to the famous Book of the Dead. Supposedly, one spell in particular spell number 167, was the work of Amunhotep son of Hapu. If that is true, then the following are his words. Quote, spell to bring forth the eye of Ra, Wajet, by the soul of the deceased. This was discovered by Amunhotep the son of Hapu, who gave protection to all his family. O Amun, the bull of fire, who makes the stones explode with his fiery breath, the god whose shape is hidden, whose image is secret, the one in the Duat who conceals mysteries and controls the entire earth. There is nothing that exists without your knowledge, Amun. I am one of your descendants. End quote. Powerful stuff. Of course, we have no evidence that Amunhotep Hapu actually wrote that passage, attributing something like this to a specific person, even someone so famous, is dangerous at best. That being said, someone believed that Amunhotep Hapu wrote this spell, and that tradition endured for more than a thousand years. It is an interesting part of his legacy that this man, who in many respects is quite forgettable, is connected with some of the most powerful and enduring parts of Egyptian religion. So Amunhotep Hapu has a big reputation, but how did he achieve this kind of fame? The most important tool of his immortality were those statues. Erected at Karnak, at Luxor, and on the West Bank, the images of Amunhotep Hapu helped to shape the mortal man as a being unique in majesty and worthy of people's worship. Let's take a very quick look at the statues, and how they made the man into a god. The statues of Amunhotep Hapu mostly show him seated, ready to work as a scribe. They are quite tall, perhaps life-size, and they show him sitting cross-legged on his plinth. Over one shoulder, a strap carrying a small pallet hangs down, which holds ink cakes for him to use. Over his knees, a long papyrus is unrolled, and his right hand holds a pen for writing. The statues are beautifully lifelike, exquisite in conception, and thanks to some top-quality craftsmanship, Amunhotep Hapu seems eternally on the verge of beginning his work. Generally speaking, the statues of Amunhotep Hapu are among the most beautiful of their time. They are made of polished granite or granodiorite, and the exquisite carving shows that these were high-quality products, perhaps made in royal workshops. As I mentioned, he sits cross-legged, wearing a kilt. His chest is bare, and this shows his slightly corpulent physique to full advantage. 
To the Egyptians, a bit of body fat was a good thing, a sign of wealth and privilege. If you could afford to eat a lot, you were clearly doing well, and if you were not getting much exercise, it meant you had a very prestigious job. Back when I worked in proper jobs, I did notice that the higher up the chain I climbed, the less actual work I had to do. For the Egyptians, perhaps the same principle applied. Amunhotep Hapu shows off his fat, his sedentary lifestyle, because it marks him out as a high-ranking, prestigious individual. So, the statues depict Amunhotep Hapu with full-on dad bod, and they're proud to do so. The scribe wears a serene, meditative expression. As he sits, he holds a papyrus scroll open in his lap. It seems as if he is deep in thought, reflecting on the words depicted. To anyone approaching the statue, back when it was painted in bright colours, he may have seemed like a man frozen in a moment of contemplation. Naturally, such an expression makes him seem like a perfect listener. When people came to visit Amunhotep Hapu, they made offerings and gave prayers to the statues. Perhaps they also asked questions, or begged for assistance from the great man himself. If any of those worshippers could read, the statue's texts would give a sense of how this was going to work. Quote, O people of Karnak, those who desire to see Amun, come to me. I will report your messages, because I am the reporter of this god. King Neb Ma'at Re caused me to repeat the words of the two lands. Therefore, Perform for me the offerings which the king gives. Summon my name daily, like that which is done for a favoured one. End quote. In death, Amunhotep Hapu positioned himself as an intermediary between the living and the divine. This was an unusual but clever move. The faithful might hope that he would reach out from the underworld and assist them in their troubles. He would provide solutions to problems, and even give guidance to deceased souls on the road to Osiris's kingdom. Simply put, Amunhotep the son of Hapu made a conscious effort to promote himself as a kind of guiding light, a protective figure who could solve the problems of the living and guide the dead on their shadowy paths. The man had an immortal legacy. Although he is largely forgotten today, Amunhotep Hapu enjoyed veneration, respect and worship for more than 1500 years. That is longer than many independent religions. So, the sage and scribe was a popular man. But how did his cult come about, and what does it tell us about religious life in ancient Egypt? That's a big question, and I can't answer it alone. I would now like to welcome Dr. Campbell Price, curator of the Egypt and Sudan collection at the Manchester Museum in England. Dr. Price is an acknowledged expert in matters of personal piety and how Egyptians outside the royal family engaged with the gods and connected with the divine realm. As part of our discussion, I thought I would interrogate him about Amunhotep the son of Hapu. So, from here on, please enjoy a discussion with Dr. Campbell Price. Talking from Manchester. My guest today is Dr. Campbell Price, the curator of the Egyptian collection at Manchester Museum and a researcher at Liverpool University. Dr. Price, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so, well, I, I can, yeah, kick off if you like. For those who aren't familiar with your work, how would you introduce yourself at a at a cocktail party? Well, as I frequently do. <laughs> um, 
So my role at Manchester Museum as the curator of Egypt and uh, Sudan involves looking after the 18,000 objects from ancient Egypt and Sudan we have in the collection. Uh, Manchester Museum is the largest university museum in Britain. We have four and a half uh, million specimens. So Egyptology, archaeology and anthropology are numerically quite small (laughs) compared to all the insects and animals we have. Uh, But the Egyptology collection is very significant because it was uh, acquired mainly uh, through archaeological excavation. So between, you know, the late 1880s and the early 1900s, the the collection was mainly formed. That means it's of great scientific value. Uh, So my main role is, is to facilitate access to the collection for anyone from university researcher, Uh, who's doing uh, quite high-level academic research to uh, families and school children who who want to know a little more about ancient Egypt. So it's it's a very rewarding job. Um, It's an incredible privilege to work with this incredible group of uh, objects. Uh, Main focus of of the job increasingly is about display, about community engagement uh, and about exhibitions. But in my role as a nonary research fellow at Liverpool University, that's where I did my PhD studies, uh, my BA and MA before that, um, my role there is is kind of uh, to to use that as an umbrella for uh, research when I'd finished my uh, PhD and I keep the association now by attending and giving seminars and uh, contributing a little bit of teaching when students from Liverpool, uh, the Egyptology programmes there, come to Manchester. Okay. And in your in the academic uh, resume that I have access to, a lot of your work has focused on things like private worship, grave goods, uh, votive offerings, particularly in sacred sacred spaces. Yeah. Are you able to sort of introduce to my listeners exactly what what you're talking about with those sort of concepts? What are we talking about when we say something like private worship in ancient Egyptian contexts? Sure, uh, that's a a nicely phrased uh, question, uh, Dominic. It was something I think that developed out of a general interest, and I think a lot of Egyptologists share this, what happens for people who are not, what what is life like for people who are not kings or queens? Mm. And in my uh, work, I mean, it it began at Liverpool, and kind of formalised in, in my PhD thesis, which I'm currently uh, revisiting uh, in order to, to publish it as a book. Oh, wonderful. But when we talk about private, <laughs> that implies there is some alternative public yes. uh, form of religion. And so I think in general, still, if you read a general Egyptology book, you read about the state religion. That's what the king does in the big temples. Mm-hmm. And then you read about private religion as being in houses um, or being something that, quotation marks, ordinary people uh, do. Mm. Of course, the, I think the reality is, is more um, nuanced than that. Of course, there is a complete spectrum of religious expression and experience that can be the king leading the, you know, the, the, the prime rituals of the state uh, in a big temple like Karnak, or it can be an ordinary person making making a household offering uh, to a particular god to 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 maybe intervene on behalf of a, a family member who's sick. Right. 
But in between these two poles, I think there's a, a real uh, sliding scale, and it is not black or white. You're not doing just private ritual or just state ritual. The two categories borrow from each other. And honestly, I, well, don't know what came first. Mm. Um, <laughs> in terms of statues and monuments, one key point I always make this to students in, in Manchester and Liverpool, the evidence we have, and we'll come on to talk about statues and stele, these are, are monuments. For the most part, they're fairly uh, well executed and they belong to the elite. Very few people can read and write. Very few people have access to the resources to create nice monuments like stele uh, and, and any kind of sizable statuary. So when we talk about private monuments, we're not talking about farmers and fields who for the most part can probably only afford to make a, a kind of spoken prayer. Uh, when we talk about private monuments, we're really talking about the wealthy, the elite uh, monument commissioning few. So private monuments are rare. They are the elite products made by wealthy individuals who can afford to commission them, pay for labour and all that sort of thing. Now most of the monuments, like stele or statues that we encounter, tend to come from this tiny slice of society, and we've encountered people like this in the podcast, you know, Senenmut, who lived under Hatshepsut, Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, whom we'll talk about in a second, Yuya, the father-in-law of Amunhotep III, wealthy individuals who can afford high-quality images that will last forever. But... Egyptian history is long, and trends change over the generations. So, for an expert like Dr. Price, what do changes in personal practice look like, and can we observe them? To to bring some more nuance, perhaps, to the, the question that I originally posed, of course, it's easy to ask a question, say, what does, what does non-royal or private worship mean in an ancient Egyptian context? But, of course, we're talking about 3,000 plus years of cultural development. Mm-hmm. So at the at a, spe- at a specific focus level, currently I am looking at New Kingdom material, but obviously in future I will be reaching later periods. Sure. Now a lot of your research has specialized particularly in the late later areas, um, say post post 1200 BC, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Do we see over time any degree of more of more common access to monument making, such as stelae. Do stelae become more numerous, or do the types of people who are making them become more um, lower ranked in any respect? Yeah, sure. I think what we see with time, so if you take the New Kingdom as a starting point, and there are, of course, interesting uh, predecessors for these these kind of developments before then, in the Middle Kingdom, even before that first intermediate period in Old Kingdom, but in the New Kingdom, an Egyptologist like Jan Asman, German Egyptologist, written a lot about Egyptian religion, he would say people become more religious. They become more pious as the, as the New Kingdom progresses. And I think a key point is that mid-18th dynasty, yeah, say around the, the reign of Amenhotep III into the reign of Akhenaten, and then after Akhenaten, um, you have the impression that people have a closer connection to a range of gods based on the monumental record. Is that because of the impact of the experience of the Amarna period, where Akhenaten completely shakes things up and revolutionizes, in a way, the the attitude of, of the king and maybe the elite to 
the divine, or as a scholar like John Baines and uh, also Elizabeth Froude, Oxford-based Egyptologists whose work I respect very much, they make a, to me, quite a plausible argument that what we see when we look at stele particularly, and statues to a lesser extent, is greater display of religion, greater display of what uh, Asman might call personal piety. It's not that people in general are more religious, it's more that fashion has changed. So before the mid-New Kingdom, uh, the iconography of Steely does not generally favour or does not generally show private individuals um, directly interacting with the gods. That's what the king does. The king is the only qualified person to interact with 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 deities um at least as far as iconography shows up until the middle new kingdom and after that amarna period especially you get private individuals those with access to to the resources as i say access to texts the the right to display these things uh, being shown in these contexts yes i think that's that's probably a very key element that can be missed sometimes i'm thinking particularly of a example for uh, my listeners benefit from the statue of a man named Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, sure. who set up a large number of statues in a mortuary or religious context. They were found at Karnak, mm-hmm. whether they were originally set up there is another question. Yes, sure. On many of the statues, he specifically opens his texts with sayings such as, quote, given as a favor from the king to the temple of Amun for the prince Amunhotep, son of Hapu, etc., etc. Sure. So offering formula themselves, even when supposedly in the context of a non-royal individual, are always very bound with that specific royal relationship. Absolutely. I mean, you you pick a really excellent example there. First of all, as you say, Amunhotep, son of Hapu, has this extremely unusual level or status in society. He is someone at court who's very important. He gets favoured by the king, his namesake, Amenhotep III, uh, with this range of statues. And in some of them, he says explicitly, this statue was given as, uh, the ancient word, as you as you may know, as hesut, gift, favour of the king. Now, we know of this phrase, and I've, I've been particularly interested in this in my own uh, research, especially recently. Um, we have this phrase from as early as the... Um, as the late Middle Kingdom. So people are, as you say, bound in with the prestige of the king giving you a statue, and it maybe points towards the actual logistical process. How do you get a statue set up in the temple? Well, the king has to give you permission. So being allowed into that space is is a restricted privilege. And back to Amenhotep, son of Hapu, he follows on uh, from another chap earlier in the 18th dynasty, very well-known guy called Senenmut, who's a chief courtier of Queen Hatshepsut. What Amenhotep son of Hapu does is almost deliberately quote this phrase given uh, as a favour, as a hesit of the king. Very few people say this statue is explicitly given as a favour, a gift of the king. Out of the thousands of inscribed private statues we know of, maybe 60 in total, uh, I've, I've, I've found, have this phrase explicitly saying that the statue was uh, given as favour of the king. 
Thousands of statues from hundreds of individuals throughout the late Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. That's about 500 years of history. Thousands of pieces and only 60 surviving statues bear this phrase, a gift or chesut of the king. What exactly is going on here? Why are these statues singled out? And what is the function of this phrase? What is it conveying? So I, I can only imagine, you know, the, the reason they have this is to show off to other elites in the temple to say, so favoured was I um, that I can tell you explicitly this statue, which tends to be, this, the phrase appears on statues made of hard stones like granite, quartzite, uh, prestige statues, not necessarily limestone, which might be easier to get hold of, but granites, granodiorites, these hard stones that, that perhaps are under a royal monopoly uh, for access to the quarry. But the point about Amenhotep son of Hapu, and something I find so interesting, uh, I agree with you, maybe wherever he sets them up originally is not where they're eventually found by archaeologists. We have this assumption that where things are found were their original location, very unlikely to be the case. Um, for places like Karnak, which were constantly being renovated, reused, reconfigured, and Amenhotep, son of Hapu, I'm sure, was uh, partly involved in that. He, have, he addresses in his texts, O you people of Karnak. Now, at least some of them, maybe conceptually, were to be set up in Karnak. Who knows? Uh, but I agree with you, there could be the possibility they are moved, especially later in time, when Amenhotep, the son of Hapu has died. Generations after his death, he is venerated as a sage, a kind of culture hero, and then eventually, by the late period, uh, he's he's worshipped as a god, as a full-on god of healing, god of medicine, a very important um, character. But when he addresses the people of Karnak, other Egyptologists have interpreted that as, you know, anyone who happens uh, to be passing any kind of um, passing yokel. I don't think that's the case. I think the access to uh, spaces like Karnak would be extremely uh, restricted. And the favour that is talked about, that privilege of getting a statue in Karnak, implies you have to be very special uh, to get within the area uh, of, of Karnak Temple and certainly to get inside. So we tend to overemphasise the public nature of those statues, especially Amenhotep, son of Hapu. Uh, I think he's addressing his peers. The people of Karnak are those people privileged um, and esteemed enough to get within uh, the temple walls. Yes, it's very much a, it's a, de- it's a declaration meant for the people who could understand it and appreciate it on the higher level that he's going for. Exactly. Which does, le- does lead me um, quite nicely into our next sort of question is, Many of the the votive stelae claim to show us a degree of personal interaction either with gods or with the king or with the deceased or with with powerful figures in the realm, primarily the king. In your own understanding or research, what do these sort of monuments reveal of people like Amonhotep, the son of Hapu, or Senenmut, or later individuals? What does this reveal of their priorities in what they're trying to get across? Sure. Well, I think what what point that that keeps being repeated and really struck me, and looking at New Kingdom stuff, but also later on, there's a fairly 
in some sense, it's fairly one-sided in that you ask, your priorities are for eternity and for the afterlife, and you want things, you want offerings, conceptually, um, whether or not practically, they're posthumous in the sense that they, they want good things in the afterlife. So food, drink, um, nice smelling ointments, linen, um, a good burial in the West, things that only uh, pertain to life after death. So when a wealthy man commissions a statue and he gets permission from the king to do this, or perhaps the king offers it to him as a reward, the man asks for offerings. These will sustain his soul in the afterlife and help him to live for millions of years conceptually. But asking for offerings is implicitly taking away from the living. If someone is offering bread, they are not able to eat it for themselves. So when an elite person sets up a statue like this, asking for offerings, the question is, what do they offer in return? Um, they, they don't seem, in general, to offer much in return. It's not like the walls of a temple where the king offers justice uh, in the form of the goddess Ma'at. It's not so much of a reciprocal arrangement. You are simply begging for things. And in some cases, uh, there are literal begging statues. Mm. That does seem to change slightly. And Amenhotep, son of Hapu, is a key person in this, where he gets into a kind of rhetorical dialogue of reciprocity. Mm. So some of Amenhotep, son of Hapu's statues address this public. As we've said, it's likely to be the people who understand the text, who have physical and intellectual access to the text uh, in the temple. But what he's asking for, <clears throat> it strikes me, is he says, if you, you, you come to my statue and pray, um, give me offerings, I will have a word with the gods on your behalf. I will repeat he says, I will repeat petitions or prayers uh, to the gods. So immediately he's getting into this dialogue, this promised dialogue. If you do something for me, I'll do something for you. Now that ensuring that your statue remains effective and noticed in the temple. There are several ways of doing this, but Amenhotep, son of Hapu, is a real trendsetter <laughs> in that he is asking specifically for mm. people who pass by who see the statue uh, to do something for him because he promises to do something for them in return. And this continues maybe in deliberate reference to people like Amenhotep son of Hapu uh, in, in the late period, uh, at Karnak at least, uh, and at some other sites. Mm. I think that's a very good point. And for, for the benefit of my listeners, I will uh, repeat a quote that he comes, because I have his statue inscriptions before me. Oh, great. He <laughs> is a slightly long one but he specifically says yeah <laughs> he's quite long-winded <laughs> uh, i'm quite fond of him for that yeah but it great. can get a bit tedious when it's mostly the repetition that gets tedious but he specifically says oh people of ipet suit which is the general karnak luxor region oh people of ipet suit those who desire to see amun come to me i will report your petitions because i am the reporter for this god then on a, another statue in the, in the same environment, he says, present libations to me with that which is in your hand, because I am the reporter whom the king has placed for hearing the words of supplication and in order to present the affairs of the two banks, which based on what we were saying earlier with the reception that 
the literate, educated audience has when they see this, he's essentially perpetuating his worldly authority in the afterlife as well. He's maintaining his privileged position as a courtier and as a wise counselor of the king, and he's making sure that that endures forever. So it all sounds very nice, and it sounds very generous on his behalf, but there's always that very strong element of self-service going on. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, presumably, because of his status um, after death, he was quite friendly with and quite close to Amenhotep III while he was alive. And some scholars have even implied that the, the location of those statues was intended, Amenhotep son of Hapus, were in, intended to be located close to uh, colossal statues of the king he served, Amenhotep III. Um, but you're absolutely right. He's using his authority in life to, as a kind of a, a, a carrot, if you like, a stick and a carrot, uh, to get people who are passing by uh, to look on him as someone reliable, as someone who, and let's not underestimate, who you would choose, you would pick out in a courtyard which was presumably fairly full of the statues of the elite. Uh, he would stand out. Mm. Why are you going to look at my statue and not someone else's? Well, if I promise this special service, you're likely to come to me and not to the other statues that don't make those promises. Also, the physical appearance of, of Amenhotep, son of Papu's uh, statues, uh, several of them are scribal. Uh, that's one of the less usual forms of statues, uh, I suspect, at Karnak. So it would stand out uh, physically from the crowd. Building on what you were just saying, something occurred to me, and that's usually the sign of a good interview is when it gives you some ideas. Good. <laughs> if, we if, we if we imagine these statues, whether they're of Amenhotep, son of Hapu, or any elite individual who set them up in a temple or tomb courtyard, sure. a public space, they, the attraction that a statue like this pulls mm -hmm. in terms of what it offers, such as being an intermediary for the gods, that has a would presumably have mm -hmm. a wonderful snowball effect in the sense that as a small group of people become aware of this statue, they begin to gravitate towards it and they bring their offerings, bread, flowers, water, offerings, wine. Mm -hmm. Those offerings begin to pile up. Sure. And very quickly, within a few months, presuming it's not cleaned too regularly, you would have a statue that was very obviously the object of great veneration compared to those around it. Yes. And the, um, the immediate example that comes to my mind, although it might not be obvious, is the, is the grave of... Jim Morrison in Paris, the singer from The Doors, his grave in Paris is abundantly clear because it's always covered in candles and flowers and graffiti from fans of his music. Yes, excellent. A, a figure like Amunhotep, the son of Hapu, while less wild. <laughs> we suspect, who knows? His monuments might have filled a similar role in a sacred space. I absolutely agree with you, Dominic. I've, I've written a little bit about this myself and it's the um it's the appreciation as you say of, of a sacred space of the realities of sacred space and human behavior and i absolutely agree there would be some kind of snowball effect and there would be a desire and we can evidence this desire because of something called archaism and the deliberate copying of styles from the past uh, forms of sculpture which are repeated much later that reference what i've I've called in print uh, successful statues. Um, but the key point about attraction, I think Amenhotep, son of Hapu, absolutely 
was doing it in a self-conscious, self-serving way by having more than one statue. You optimize the chances that people will give offerings to this. Um, it happens into the late period. Sen and Mut, you know, has 25, 26 statues that we know of, probably originally many more. Um, you set these statues up, not just in courtyards, but at key points in chapels. Uh, even there's discussion of statues uh, being set up in, in elite granaries, um, although the context is, is, is not absolutely clear, to optimise your chances of interaction. And that is what it's all about. And again, I think Amenhotep, son of Hapu, is a trendsetter. When we talk about votive statues, yes, they're votive in the sense they're somehow gifts to gods uh, and they show your piety and your respect in sacred space, but they're also billboards they're also, as, as one student said to me, clickbait, spend a moment, <laughs> give an offering maybe, ideally, um, but at least say aloud the name of that individual. And I think the success of those statues, and that's absolutely the right word, is assured by the fame of the individual, by the form of the statue, and we can measure that fame by the fact that people like Amenhotep, son of Hapu, has statues which seem to be copied uh, in later uh, forms of sculpture, in Karnak at least. Mm, absolutely. So I like the idea of clickbait. It's, yeah. it's quite funny. It's it's almost like a person on the street saying, have you considered worshipping Amenhotep son of Hapu today? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, have a, we have a special two for one offerings. I uh, know. It's incredible. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So an individual like, like this man or Let's let's move to a later period, slightly perhaps post post Amana, post Ramesset. Yeah, we are moving into a different theological and political context. Sure. And broadly speaking, after the after the breakdown of, I guess you could call the centralized monarchy of the of the high Ramesses. Sure. Yeah. And with the twentieth twentieth and twenty first dynasty, sort of diminishing broadly speaking yeah i don't i don't like that word too much but um, yeah let's let's use it for now yeah yeah um do we see any kind of changes in the way that the elites are expressing themselves in these kinds of monuments specifically you know votive stelae or statues are they at different periods are they trying new things or are they looking back to more prosperous times i think as you say, we can only base our judgments um, on what is preserved. First and foremost, towards the end of the 20th dynasty, into the 21st, there is a marked downturn in the preserved um, instance of sculpture. So to take Karnak as an example, and in particular the Karnak cachette, this incredible find of, of over a thousand stone statues, uh, under um, the, the 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 court of the um, of the uh, the the eighth pylon at Karnak, uh, that very central space excavated by uh, the French Egyptologist Georges Legrand in the um, between 1903 and, and 1906. If you use that as an index of what kind of sculpture was produced, which has some drawbacks, but you can see, you know, there's Middle Kingdom stuff, there's New Kingdom stuff, there's Late Period stuff, but there's a marked absence of anything really from Dynasty 21, royal um, or uh, private. 
And I think that has a lot to do with the economic situation, although not entirely economic situation, but also the focus of interest at the time seems to, for the elite, go on to the coffin and the the mummy itself. So the treatment of the body, uh, the treatment of the coffin with these very dense um, scenes, uh, theological scenes, excerpts from the Book of the Dead, what might once have decorated a tomb chapel, or for that um, matter, uh, monuments like Steely, uh, get shrunk down and, and, and compressed onto the coffin. So as a result, you don't really get much in the way of private monuments for the elite uh, in temples, as far as we can tell. Uh, it really focuses on the grave. With Dynasty 22, there seems to be a change, and then new stone sculpture uh, reappears, and that looks back, that seems to look back to the 18th Dynasty. And in that sense, um, they seem to skip over the Ramesside period. In some sense, um, the glorious past for someone living even in Dynasty 21, we know there's there's deliberate reference uh, into the 18th Dynasty uh, from Dynasty 21, but certainly in Dynasty 22, the faces on some of the sculptures are, for all the world, like Tutmosaid, uh, kind of Hatshepsut, Tutmosis III um, faces. So I think there's, there's archaism, and I guess there's always archaism, there's always looking to the past. That's why Egyptian art is so uh, conservative, conservative small c um, throughout pharaonic times um, but you do get it going into the third intermediate period with the deliberate selection of uh, images which presumably statues would still have been visible uh, statues like Amenhotep son of Hapus or other uh, important people from, from the past would act as models whether there's a a change in people's expectations of the afterlife at this point is difficult to say. As you've suggested, all we have um, are the elite expressions. Uh, we can kind of gauge the level of expression, but maybe not the level of the beliefs. We don't know for sure what people believed. Certainly. So broadly speaking, as as time went on, people continued to look back to the mid 18th dynasty as the sort of the touchstone for their um, public expressions of quote unquote piety. I think so. Yeah. It, and I mean, I'm, we're speaking in very, very general terms also. Um, and you could take examples that might argue against this, but to come back to that example of the statues said to be given as a gift of the king, given as favour of the king. Mm. And this is something I've looked into in, in some detail and I find very interesting. So those phrases um, basically stop with um, Amenhotep, son of Hapu. Uh, there are a couple of outliers, but they don't really, the phrase doesn't appear at all in the Ramesside period. Mm. Um, and it reappears in Dynasty 22. So there seems to be an idea of statuary emerges uh, in Dynasty 22 
the idea of the favored one, even the 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 sign favored one, the, the hesi or or person given hesut in favor, is written with the sign of a little block statue, <laughs> and this seems to deliberately reference those statues from the high 18th dynasty that are given as favor of the king. Okay. When people are choosing to reference a favored person. They are thinking, I'm sure, of Amenhotep, son of Harpu, of Senin, of these great viziers uh, from D- Dynasty 18, and less uh, their Ramesside uh, uh, um, successors. Mm. Okay, so almost like how every every head of state gets their official portrait, but not every portrait endures in the public memory. No, absolutely, absolutely. So there you have it, Amunhotep the son of Hapu, as he sits within a context of private worship during the mid and late 18th dynasty. Thank you for joining me for this discussion. Dr. Price and I spoke for about two hours in total and covered a wide range of material. I will release the full interview within the next few weeks, once we have completed our look at the life and times of Amunhotep son of Hapu. In episodes 103 and 104, we will explore more of his environment and the deeds he performed in service to the royal household. We will also explore the palace where he may have spent some time. But first, I have something wonderfully different to offer. In the next episode of the History of Egypt, we take a trip outside the Nile Valley following a diplomatic embassy as they forge contacts with different kingdoms. You would be forgiven for assuming that this was Nubia, or the Mitanni, or even lands in Mesopotamia and Anatolia. No, our embassy is going somewhere new. They are going to Greece. The podcast will return in two weeks for episode 102, An Egyptian Odyssey. It's going to be a great one. Oh, by the way, stick around after the ad break for an epilogue to this discussion, including some listener questions and an excerpt from the larger discussion with Dr. Price. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As I was preparing this episode for release, a number of questions came through that I thought would be well worth answering in the public sphere. Most questions that I get are too specific to easily share, but these ones were right on the money at just the right time. Listener Matthew asked, Did Egyptians worship primarily in the home, or did they journey to shrines and temples? Secondly, was a household expected to worship a particular deity more than any others? Thanks, Matthew. Those are great questions. We know that the Egyptians did worship in the home, or at the very least, we know that religious items like statuettes and tools like offering dishes or bread moulds occasionally show up in domestic environments. The problem is, practice seems to have varied from place to place. Although we might find artefacts in one house, 
this doesn't mean that Egyptians everywhere followed such a habit. So it's actually a really difficult question to answer properly. However, I'm going to do my best. In an upcoming episode, I will devote a full discussion to the questions of personal piety and practice on a daily basis. Now that we have passed the year 1400 BCE, our evidence for private religious habits starts to slowly increase. So, I can start to say more on this incredibly important topic, and eventually present a day in the life of a religious Egyptian person. That episode will release in December, if all goes to plan. The second question, was a household expected to worship a particular deity more than others? Generally speaking, highly unlikely. Although some towns were clearly dominated by their significant temples, Amun-Ra at Thebes, Horus at Edfu, Hathor at Dendera, and so on, the evidence for individual homes suggests that personal practice was pretty much at an individual's discretion. Certain gods were clearly more popular in domestic contexts. Hathor the mother was always a favourite, Taweret and Bess were equally well regarded, and a being like Isis was slowly starting to gain more influence as the new kingdom developed. Again, this is a huge question with lots of gaps in our knowledge, but to give you a short basic answer, as far as we can tell, households worshipped as they pleased according to their personal preferences, and probably their day-to-day -day needs. Thanks for your questions Matthew, I hoped those helped. Listener Michael asked the following, are archaeologists sitting on figurative mountains of untranslated words, or have, for the most part, most writings been discovered and translated? When I do my best version of a tour of Egypt, I notice a ridiculous number of tombs and can only assume that there must be a flood of language that just sits there untranslated. Thanks Michael, that's a really interesting question. There are probably great quantities of untranslated material in private collections and museum storerooms throughout the world. As a rule of thumb, what you see in a museum gallery is at best about 10% of their total collection. Museum vaults are full of objects that are too small or too damaged to put on display. Others are simply not so interesting for the general public and are kept in storage for academic reference. Unfortunately, the Egyptological community is too small, and the funding too scarce, for us to cover everything that is preserved in museums. Also, private collections, especially in Europe, hold unknown quantities of material, and museum curators are constantly on the lookout for these things, but it's hard to know what is actually out there. On top of that, archaeologists working in Egypt are conscious to leave things for future generations, so many discoveries still turn up in the storehouses of the excavation teams. Who knows what kind of stone stele or ostraca or even papyrus are waiting to be noticed. As for tombs, generally speaking these are extremely well documented. Ever since the early days of Egyptology, scientists who uncover the tombs were conscious to copy down the hieroglyphs as quickly as possible in case any damage occurred. Some of these may not have been fully translated, but by and large, they are all published, so they're waiting translation at the very least. Chances are in general, yes, there are huge quantities of untranslated or unidentified material which may be of historic interest, but Egyptologists are constantly working on it, and it's an ongoing process. It's a good question though, thanks for asking. That's it for questions this week. Now, 
please enjoy a short excerpt from the full interview with Dr. Price. For context, we were talking about statues of Amunhotep son of Hapu when Dr. Price related this amusing anecdote about the statues themselves and how people cared for them, maintaining the images over the years. We have, for example, an example of one of those statues of Amunhotep son of Hapu where the nose has been uh, worn away or cut back, apparently um, to, to kind of key the stone, the granodiorite stone for plaster, because maybe the statue has been damaged in some way and it's required a new nose job uh, <laughs> just to, to bring it back to its full um, original appearance. We do have later texts. This is exclusively from the late period, the material mm-hmm. uh, I'm most interested in. This discuss exactly what you just, just described. Uh, statues, hopefully, having so many offerings that they have to be cleaned and dusted of the remains of the offerings, uh, which presumably can amass uh, sticky uh, things like wine or the juices of, you know, a haunch of beef, assuming, yeah, flowers are not being reused uh, and and sticky substances like beer and wine, um, you would need and you would require cleaning of these statues because there's the very, very serious implication that if in some sense your spirit exists through the statue, um, decaying remains of flowers are not desirable because they are pollutants. They are impure uh, on your kind of internal body and you need uh, you need to have a clean uh, a, a clean appearance in the temple. So there's a wonderful image of, of priests going through the temples with, you know, big feather dusters. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.